Good morning, Cornerstone. There is nothing that focuses the mind better than having a near-death experience. Has anybody ever had a near-death experience? There's nothing that focuses the mind. Quite like having a near-death experience. I know this from my own experience. I was driving a tractor trailer southbound on Interstate 71, Cleveland, Ohio, heading down into Kentucky. And the road was very shiny. And as I came up to the crest of the hill, I looked in my rearview mirror to look at my tires to see if there was any water splashing up from my tires. That's the way you know whether you're on ice or not. And there was no water. So I suspected that I was on black ice. And my suspicion was confirmed because as soon as I came over the crest of the hill, down about a half mile in front of me, there was another tractor trailer and he was dancing like he was on ice skates. And of course I got kind of nervous, but I figured I could get around him, but then suddenly his tractor trailer began to turn sideways on the three lane highway. And as I approached him, the tractor trailer was across all three lanes and I could not hit my brakes. It's amazing how just a few seconds, your whole lifetime can flash before your eyes in just a few seconds. As I am careening down this hill toward the truck, I thought about my wife, and I thought about my children. I thought about my insurance policy. I thought about those people I had not forgiven and those people that I had never asked forgiveness of. All of those things were just flashing through my mind really quickly. And I, in that moment, repented to God for my gross negligence. And I gra grasped the wheel and prepared to make impact with the truck. There's nothing that focuses the mind quite like a near-death experience. Well, obviously I didn't die, but I did learn a valuable lesson. What I learned is that life is short. Life is short. No one knows their final day. No one knows their final hour, but for every living soul, that day is drawing more and more near with each second. Director of the Center for Loss and Life Transition, Dr. Alan Wolfett, lists 10 things a person should do when they are diagnosed with a terminal disease. He says, the first thing you should do when you learn that you are dying is to acknowledge that you are dying. Tell the truth, be honest with yourself, don't try to hide from that reality that you are dying. That's the first thing he says you should do. Secondly, you should take some time to question the meaning of life, specifically question the meaning of your life, to look back over your life, see where you have been, what you have done, and try to interpret what your life 
actually meant. Another thing he says you should do is you should say goodbye as you prepare to depart. You should reach out for support. And among the final six things that you should do, he says, when you're preparing to die, when you get that bad news, he says you should embrace your spirituality. Embrace your spirituality. Embrace the idea that there is more to you than just your flesh and blood, more to life than this physical existence. Embrace your spirituality. Tap into the hope that comes from recognizing this mysterious truth that you are both body, mind, and soul, and spirit. There is some wisdom in what Dr. Wolfett advises. But the Apostle Paul in our text today seems to believe that such advice should be applied not only to those who have received an official diagnosis of impending doom, but to all of us. Paul says in verse 11 that we should do this. We should do good. We should be subject to governing authorities. We should be kind to our enemies. We should love our neighbor. Do this because you know the time. Of course, Paul is talking primarily about the eschatological time. You know that the time is near. The end of days is near. The great day of the Lord's return is near. You know the time. But the truth is, even if you don't know the eschatological time, even if you don't spend much time trying to decipher God's in-game plan, you still have a good sense of your time. You know, for example, that you were born dying. Who didn't know that? You were born dying. If nothing else, you know that you have less time today than you had yesterday. You know that much. And as a believer, you also realize that when your transition, where you become absent from this body, when your transition occurs, you will be immediately present before the Lord. And that day for you will be the great day. In a real sense, we are intimately aware that the time of our final departure is drawing near. I remember when I first realized that I was 35 years old, I was driving along and I thought to myself, you know, I probably have less years left in this world than I've already spent. That's a depressing thought, isn't it? I probably have less time left in this world than I've already spent. We're aware that all of our time is short. Man's days are few and full of trouble. So we should take Paul's admonition seriously because as he says here, it is already the hour for you to awaken from your sleep. I told this story before. I was driving westbound in my tractor trailer again, down in, on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, around two o'clock in the morning, when I fell asleep at the wheel. 
My eyes were wide open, but my mind was fast asleep. And as I drove down this mountainside of the Pennsylvania Turnpike, I was aware of the signs on the side of the road, but my mind was not able to compute their meanings as fast as I would have had I been awake. I drove past one sign and the sign had the symbol of a truck sloped down. I saw the sign, but I was asleep. I saw the sign and my mind began to process what the sign may have meant, but it wasn't doing it nearly fast enough. I came to another sign and I saw the sign again. It was a U-turn arrow letting me know that I was about to come into a very sharp curve. But I couldn't, I couldn't calculate that fast enough because my mind was asleep. And my sluggish mind struggled to decode the signs. And as I slowly began to unravel the meaning of the signs, I concluded that I was heading down a steep hill coming into a very sharp curve. I also realized that I was asleep. Have you ever done that? You're asleep and you become aware of the fact that you're asleep? I'm driving along, I see the signs, my brain says, Calvin, that's downhill coming into a sharp curve, you need to wake up. And you know what I did? I started shaking my head. I was asleep. And I shook myself awake. <laughs> and when I came to myself, the engine was revving, the RPMs were off the chart. I was flying down a hill coming into a curve in a tractor trailer and thank God it was two o'clock in the morning and nobody else was out there. So I had all four lanes to myself. I awakened and I was able, thank God, to take care of the problem by tapping on my brakes very lightly and going all the way into the fourth inner lane and all the way back out to the fourth outer lane and all the way back in. I serpentined all the way down the mountain and around the hill. I woke up not a moment too soon. Sleep is a universal necessity. Birds need it. Bees need it. Bears need sleep. Even the trees take their rest, rest in the wintertime. I have a chihuahua at home. His name is Smokey. And he is the most sleepy dog I have ever seen. My dog loves to sleep. And when I get up in the morning and turn on the lights, he peeks at me from under his covers. Yes, I said, under his covers. He needs cover to sleep because he hates the light. He peeks out from under his covers and gives me a scowl. He hates the morning, he is not a morning dog. He's not an afternoon dog, actually. He's not even an evening dog. He loves to sleep. But more than loving to sleep, my little dog hates having to interact with the world around him. My dog was abused. When he came to me, he had been abused. And he maintains to this day, after four years, a deep distrust of human beings. Had he his rathers, he would never intera interact with a human ever again. You can tell when you meet him. He is not very happy about being around people, even his master. 
this seems to me to be the same reason why we humans love to sleep. Because when I am asleep, I am not aware of my neighbor, so I don't have to worry about loving my neighbor. When I am asleep, I am oblivious to my enemies, so I don't need to worry about being kind to my enemies. When I am asleep, I feel carefree and without obligation. This is why so many humans love to sleep. And we sleep while we're standing up, we sleep while we're walking, we sleep while we're on the train. Our cell phones serve as a pillow. Our laptops serve as a bed. Video games serve as our comforters. And most of the day we are checked out of reality. We feel no social obligation and no responsibility for our neighbor, for our community, or even for one another. We are not here. We are not present. Most people you meet in this world are not present. We are asleep. But Paul stirs us here to wake up from our sleep. To wake up and see the world as it is and for what it is. To wake up and to read the times. For now, Paul says, Salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. You don't have to be a prophet. You don't have to be a Nostradamus to recognize this fact. That the second coming of Jesus Christ is fast approaching us. And even those who don't believe in Christ, even those who refuse to acknowledge Jesus Christ, even they can tell that the world is hurling down a steep hill into a sharp turn. We can sense it. But this becomes the very reason why so many of us are asleep. This may be the reason that many believers are asleep. Because we don't want to see what's coming. Hmm. We're afraid to envision the end. So we are casual in our walk with Jesus Christ, procrastinating, distracting ourselves from this present moment in exchange for one more day of life as we know it. And it is because we are asleep that the world is spinning so far out of control. The engine of this world is revving louder and louder, but nobody seems to want to awaken to address this world's ills. This is why there are wars and constant rumors of wars. The whole world and much of the church is asleep. Love has grown cold. Religion has become burdensome. Relationships have become shallow as, as the church tucks itself away on beds of ease, putting forth no kingdom effort and no kingdom vision. No effort to inject God's kindness or God's love into this dying world fearing that we'll have no impact and only bring unwanted attention to ourselves so we are asleep. We allow ourselves to be lulled into a deep spiritual slumber because the world seems so dark. And nighttime, nighttime is usually the appropriate time to sleep. So 
Because we are nocturnal beings, our natural response to the darkness of this world is to just sleep through it. That's what the alcoholic is trying to do. He's trying to sleep through it. That's what the drug addict is trying to do. He's trying to sleep through it. That's what the lifelong learner who never stops going to school is trying to do. Just trying to sleep through this darkness called the world. But Paul tells us here that the, the night is almost gone. And the day is near. The world and its darkness is slowly but surely passing away, Paul says. The night is almost gone. These illusions of pleasure, the shallowness of riches, the pride of life is proving itself to be only a mirage. As the covers of truth continue to expose the weaknesses, the frailties of this world. And as the light of God's truth shines more and more brightly, the frivolous nature of all human endeavor becomes more and more apparent to the naked eye. The dark night is almost gone, Paul says. And the day, the day is near. That day is near. The great day of Christ's return is near. The day, that great day of your departure may be even nearer today than when you first believe. And in light of this truth, Paul admonishes us that we should rid ourselves of the deeds of darkness. And what is the most fundamental deed of darkness? Sleep, apathy, laziness, disengagement, unawareness. Spiritual sleepiness, spiritual sluggishness is not a sin, but it can lead to all sorts of sins. The world is dark and we can't change that. What we can do, Paul says, is we can put on the armor of light. We can put on our spiritual flashlights and shine light into this darkness. We can shine the light of Jesus Christ into the pervasive darkness of this world. First, so that we can see ourselves, but also so that we can light the way for someone else. The world needs light. In response to Jesus Christ coming into the world, the prophet wrote, and Matthew recalls in Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, he recalls that the people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. The alarm bell. Jesus Christ is the clarion call who came to gather our attention and to alert us to the danger that lurks in the shadows, sin, and to the possibilities that come from a relationship with him, salvation. Jesus Christ is the light. And Paul says that because we are in Christ, we too should put on the armor of light. What does that look like? Well, Paul concludes in verse 13. Let's behave properly as in the day. 
Let's behave the way that we would behave if it was daylight and everyone could see us. Let's conduct ourselves and our lives as if we are aware that God sees us at all times and nothing is hidden from him. Let's behave like we know we're being watched because we are being watched. There are some things that you do in the dark that you would not dare do in the day. There are some things that you say in private that you would never say publicly. Paul says we are to live our lives as if all our actions and all our words are done in the plain sight of all men and of God himself. Walk as if you are in the day. Because there are some things that don't look good on anyone. Carousing and drunkenness. Sexual promiscuity and debauchery, strife and jealousy, those are deeds of the darkness. These are the kinds of shameful actions and attitudes that we try to hide from others. These are the kinds of actions and attitudes that bring shame upon us. These are the deeds of darkness, sins we would like to keep secret. And we try to justify, we try to deny these sins by putting on religion. By putting on our Sunday best. By talking Bible and pontificating on deep theological truths. We try to hide our sin under religion. But we cannot hide our sins through religious road, through religious practice. What Paul would have us to do is to rid ourselves of our sins by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ every single day. This means that each day we deny ourselves the right to do as we please. Each day we reject the notion that we live only for pleasure, pleasure to satisfy our every longing. Each day we renounce our liberty to do as we choose and we voluntarily accept Jesus Christ's call to repentance and to salvation. Each and every day we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Each and every day we acknowledge that our lives are not our own, that we are bought with the price of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We hasten each and every day to obey his every word. What does that look like? It looks like this. We strive by the Holy Spirit to think like Jesus, to act like Jesus, to be like Jesus. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ. A man who had nothing to be ashamed of because all of his works were good and all of his works were done in the light. Put on Jesus Christ, a man who had no need for the night because there was nothing about him for which he should be ashamed. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says. And make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. In other words, do not live to serve your lower nature, your flesh. Paul says we are to take no consideration for our fleshly desires, that we should not live to serve our temporal fleshly cravings. 
But we live to serve Jesus Christ with all of our hearts, all of our mind, all of our soul, and with all of our strength. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lay down your life and receive his life. Ironically, ironically, we call the book of Romans the book of grace. Ironically, we often quote the book of Romans to demonstrate that God is not so interested in our deeds as he is in our hearts. We use Romans to, to, to support those ideas. But in these final words of the book of Romans, in these final words of application, Paul is saying something quite different. And apparently one of the lessons Paul would have us to learn from the book of Romans is that sin brings death. That sin is a disease from which we can and we should be delivered. And that because of what God has done through Jesus Christ, you and I can be free from the bondages of sin. And we can walk in newness of life. One of the things that breaks a pastor's heart more than anything is to preach Sunday after Sunday, to explain Sunday after Sunday what this walk with Jesus Christ is all about, to describe as best we can Sunday after Sunday and to see the lives of his people and to see that no one is really taking what he's saying seriously at all. That it's just religious rote. And we just come together and open our books and we all say the prayers and we all raise our hands, but there is no life change. Sometimes it can feel like a waste of time. Taking people to the book over and over and over again and realizing they're not actually hearing what you're saying. And if they're hearing it, they're not applying it to their lives. Paul the Apostle is saying here, Take your walk with Jesus Christ seriously. Do the work. Put forth the effort. Dig in. Make your stand. Don't be casual with your faith. Don't be casual with your walk with him. Don't take your walk for granted. One of my highest desires and one of my highest goals in this walk with Christ is to live a sinless life. Somebody would say to me, well, Calvin, you already know that's impossible to live a sinless life. Well, I'm putting forth the effort anyway because I want to be like Jesus. I take this walk seriously. If you've been around me long enough, you know by now that I despise religion. I despise going through the motions of faith. This is a serious walk, a serious commitment, and a serious call that deserves my all, my everything. Jesus Christ gave his everything for you. We should give our everything for him. Unfortunately, when you walk with Christ for a while, you can become rather casual. You can learn how to explain away all of your sins and all of your deficiencies and all of your flaws. 
You just say, that's the way I am, and God accepts me as I am, and I have grace, so I'm not worrying about it. And you stop putting forth effort in the kingdom of God. And you lose your hunger, and you lose your thirst for the things of God. And you're lulled to sleep by the sins of this world. And at that point, Jesus Christ can no longer depend on you to be a vessel of honor, to carry his word and his love to the masses because you've become self-absorbed and you're living only for yourself. Take this walk with Jesus Christ seriously, brothers and sisters, because the night is almost gone and the day is near. We don't know the day, we don't know the hour when Jesus Christ will come again in the clouds, but we believe that the coming, the second coming of Jesus Christ is imminent. He's coming soon. This is an urgent call. He's coming, and even if he doesn't come soon, as I said before, the average lifespan of an American is only 75 years. Even if he doesn't come soon, I probably only got 19 years left. The time is spent. The day is near. I don't want to play church. I don't want to play religion. I want to follow Jesus Christ with everything that I have to be pleasing in his sight, to be a symbol of his grace and his goodness to this world. So put on the armor of light. Walk as children of the day. Be an example of what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. He might be glorified in your life. Let's pray. Father God, I often confess to you that I am and we are prone to wander. That our hearts are prone to leave the God that we love. Most of us in this room would never consider backsliding or walking completely away from you, but there are many of us in this room who have, for all intents and purposes, walked away from you a long time ago. No longer being led by your spirit, no longer being led by your word, but going through the motions and taking this salvation for granted. Father God, we repent today for our laziness, for our sleepiness, for our apathy. We repent today for our inability to learn new things, for our unteachableness. We ask you, Lord God, to restore the joy of our salvation, to renew the excitement, the enthusiasm, and the vigor that we have when we first came to know you. We pray for revival. We pray, Lord God, that we will see your light once again, that we will see clearly, that we will see our lives, that we will see this world, that we will see our neighbors through your eyes, that we might hear your voice, that we might be led and filled with your spirit. Have your way among us. Forgive us, Lord God, for not taking you seriously, as seriously as we should. Restore us, Lord God to our first love, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.